trigger warning, I talk in graphic detail in this episode about my eating disorder. Welcome to the Fuck Saving Face podcast. I'm your host, Judy Tsui, and together we'll explore mental and emotional health for Asian Americans, especially breaking through any taboo topics. Life may not always be pretty, but it is indeed beautiful. Let's make your story beautiful today. I held my iBook on my lap, the lights off in the cement box of a room I was now renting in Shanghai, China, where I was teaching English. My eating disorder was nearing its lowest point, and I obsessed about the folds of fat that hung around my sides. I couldn't think about anything else. I didn't understand. I thought I had moved for a new beginning, new excitement, but here I was simply feeling these old, old, old things coming to the surface that I did not have the capacity to deal with. Even though I was working as an editor at the city's leading English language expat magazine, that's Shanghai, even though on the surface, my life looked perfectly glamorous for a mid-20-something-year-old who was going to art gallery openings and conducting restaurant reviews and getting red envelopes of money stuffed into press kits, I was miserable. So at night, by myself, I kept writing in a little WYSIWYG box on my blog. This was back in the early 2000s when blogging was something new. The background of my blog page on Zango was purple. My best friend from junior high, B, began to date the co-founder of the site. She would go on to create a remarkably successful wedding blog, but in the interim, she was showing me that you could write and share about your life and people would be interested enough to read it. Do you want me to introduce you to my fiance? She emailed me one day. He could feature your blog on the homepage. Sure, I said, not really knowing what this meant. Up until now, I thought blogging was simply me saving myself time to update my friends back in the States about what I was up to. By the next week, my Zango blog was on the homepage, and suddenly I started getting thousands of new readers a day. Because Zango's audience was predominantly Asian, I began to get readers just like me from all over the world commenting and sharing on my posts. At first, I took photos of Chinglish signs and posted about the different ways of life that I was experiencing, like how I would stop by the fruit vendor on my way to the office to get a pomelo that was as large as my head. She would cut the peel open so that it had tentacles like an octopus. I often thought about wearing it as a helmet and taking a funny photo. Then I began to write about what was really going on. I began to write about my eating disorder, my depression, my anxiety. I don't know why I felt like I was okay being so vulnerable and open, but I was. I think it was because writing was like breathing to me, and it was the only way that I felt like I could process through big emotions that I didn't know what to do with. And now, because of B and her fiancé, I had an audience. At 24, I was starting to do the very thing that now at 42 I'm still doing, writing processing, sharing, hoping that what I'm going through helps someone else feel less guilty, less shameful, less alone. You put into words the things that I was feeling but didn't know how to say. I didn't know anyone else was going through this, one person would comment. I wish I had the courage to share like you do, another person wrote. Thank you for helping me express what I've been going through. I kept writing. I also kept binging and purging. For some reason that I now can't remember, I left my English teaching job in the middle of the night like a fugitive. My friend Eric, who had been introduced to me through a mutual friend from Berkeley, came to help me pack up my things and bring them to his parents' part-time home 30 minutes outside the heart of the city. We actually became friends, and he actually came to know me through my blog, reading it before he moved from Northern California to Shanghai. 
He told me once that my writing was so funny he actually spit his cereal out at the computer screen. A week later, I would find a new apartment. This one was in a high-rise building with a bay window that would open to other clustered buildings so close together that I could reach over and touch someone else's hanging laundry in their windowsill. My friends in Shanghai liked knowing me because of the perks I got through my job. I constantly get invited to the latest events, club openings, anything that was hot that people wanted to be at and go to. Any business that wanted worthwhile press to appeal to the more affluent expat community wanted to be featured by our magazine. So I always looked bright, happy, social when we were out. But at night, when the yellow taxi cab zigzagged recklessly to get me home, I would relieve my stress, my anxiety, my depression by doing things that made me feel so terrible about myself, so shameful, so secretive that it added to the extra weight that was now on my body. Across the street from my new apartment was a late night bakery. And when I got dropped off after nights of drinking, I would quickly, furtively buy a pound of cookies, stuffing them into my bag in hopes that the shop owner wouldn't judge me, that she wouldn't judge how fat I was getting. My knockoff purse jangled with the sound of the saran wrap as I rushed up the stairs. During the days, I would walk into stores, and store owners would say in Mandarin, after their usual huaying, guaying, welcome, don't try that on, it won't fit, you're too fat. While in the elevator up to the 18th floor, I would start to gobble the cookies up. By the time I unlocked the door to my apartment, I would beeline to the kitchen to chug 16 ounces of water before racing quickly over to my toilet to throw it all up. Whatever I couldn't binge in that session, I would try to toss in the trash, covering up the cookies with more garbage so I wouldn't be tempted to go back and eat more. I felt high from the heart palpitations and the violent vomiting. I will never do this again, I would say to myself. I would make these promises over and over and over again. Five minutes later, I would be doing it all again, carefully peeling out any salvageable cookies from the trash. My period had stopped coming. My breath had become labored, and sometimes it felt like my heart was fluttering in my chest even when I was sitting and doing absolutely nothing at all. I knew that my body was falling apart, but my addiction to binge eating and purging was stronger than my will to live or to stop this behavior. I couldn't stop thinking, obsessing about my next meal. I couldn't stop punishing myself by trying to starve my body until mid-afternoon when I would inevitably open my mouth and the floodgates of bad behavior would follow. One night, after weeks of visiting restaurants for a quarterly big restaurant guide and bringing all of my friends to every meal, laughing, drinking, smoking cigarettes, eating everything on the magazine's tab, I came home alone with a styrofoam box of food. Shanghai at this time was such a crazy dichotomy of absolute wealth, Fendi, Prada stores, next to abject deprivation, where people had been maimed so badly it was difficult to look at them, to wonder how they could actually physically be surviving. They would push their bodies on skateboards, on anything with wheels, just to get around, asking for some change. Occasionally, homeless people would saunter through the neighborhood that I now lived in, so I thought I'd be kind-hearted and leave the styrofoam boxes of food on the side railing of the stairs leading up to my building for someone else to benefit from our bounty. I went through the front door, took the elevator up to my apartment, sat down, and began to fidget. My breath increased in speed. I couldn't sit still. I couldn't stop thinking about the food on the stairs. 
I tried to stop myself from wanting to put it all in my body. I tried to break the endless cycle of starve, binge, purge, starve, binge, purge, starve, binge, purge, hate. And I really did hate myself. I hated the disappointment I would feel that I couldn't keep a promise to never do this again. I felt so much self-loathing. When I finally entered into my intensive outpatient program in Los Angeles, the fellow clients in the program would share about how they were addicted to alcohol, to meth. Years later, I would start working at an inpatient residential home in San Diego, bringing girls to 12-step meetings, where I would again hear people share about how their addiction was compulsive, how it was uncontrollable, heroin, cocaine. If you think that food is not a drug, then you have never had an eating disorder, because when I had mine, I was an addict just like everybody else. I lied. I cheated. I stole. I compromised my body, all for food. I did whatever I could for my fix, for my high. I hid in bathrooms and learned how to vomit with barely making a sound, knowing if I chugged a lot of water first, it would make the food come back up easier. I would use a toilet seat cover to protect my clothes so that any water or remnants of food that popped back out of the bowl wouldn't get on my clothes. I knew what foods hurt the second time around and what foods would be easy to get back out. Rich, fatty, sweet desserts were easy. Chips, cheese, those things were hard. I couldn't handle it anymore. I grabbed my key, then ran to the elevator, pushing the button urgently. It had been 10 minutes since I'd been back. The door to my apartment slammed with authority, locking its silver sideways latch. The elevator opened. I pushed the button for the ground floor. The bag of food was still there. I grabbed it guiltily. Someone else may have been starving, but my pain was more pressing. I hurried back into the building, back up to my place, then shoved the food into my face, swallowing almost without chewing. Five minutes later, I was bent over the toilet again, throwing it all up. When I returned to the States, people would say to me, well, why can't you just stop eating so much? But those comments were not helpful, and they reflected how the people closest to me in my life didn't understand what I was going through. So the way that I would describe an eating disorder to someone who doesn't understand is I would say, imagine you are terrified of water, that you have to bathe in it every day. You have to drink it every day, multiple times a day. You have to wash your hands multiple times a day, but you are terrified of water so that every time you get around it, your heart starts to beat more quickly and you feel yourself getting hot that the thoughts in your mind become louder and you can't think about anything else. This is what it's like to be addicted to food, to know that your drug of choice is something that you will never have the option to not engage in in order to survive and thrive. Nine months after this episode, my ex-boyfriend Clint and two friends Steve and Mia flew out to visit me. I said that I would use their trip as a way home. In addition to coming to visit Shanghai, we would all be going to Thailand together. I found out that Steve and Mia had been flirting with each other for the last few months, and Clint and I had broken up for almost a year, yet he still housed my VW Jetta in his garage. I showed these friends the blind men foot massage parlors, late night dim sum, the French-inspired bund by the water, the purplish oriental pearl tower, and all the clubs where we'd sweat and drink and dance and smoke. At the time, I was using a handkerchief to cover my wrist because prior to moving to Asia, I had driven cross-country from leaving my job in South Carolina with a new puppy in tow. My parents promised they would watch her, but by the time I got back, they said, it's too much. 
I wanted to believe that they would come through, but even as I began drafting up the email to friends, seeing if anyone knew of someone wanting to rehome my puppy Hula, I knew I had expected too much. And this was just one of the reasons that I always kept running. This is part of how I found myself from South Carolina now to the other side of the world, the farthest that I could have gotten to get away from my life, but there I still was. And this time, I felt like I was dying. The puppy had given me ringworm. I tried to explain this to the doctors, but my broken mandarin was insufficient and the creams they gave me simply didn't work. I dealt with an opening sore on my wrist for the better part of four months. By the time we got to Thailand, my skin was scabbing. My psyche was raw. I did not want to go on. But a quiet part of me had done my research. I had asked a friend to help me find treatment options, and she sent me an email back with a facility less than 10 minutes from my parents' house in LA. I didn't know what I wanted next. I wasn't convinced I wanted to go on living, but I knew I didn't want to be living in Shanghai anymore. In Thailand, it felt like Clint and I had renewed our relationship, until one night, on the balcony of our hotel in Kribi, we stayed up late, just the two of us talking, and he said, I have something to tell you. I'm dating my roommate. We cried that night. Together we cried because things were ending. I had introduced Clint to one of my good friends in Shanghai, someone that I hooked up with one night, kind of, and later the two of them would start a motion graphics company together. Steve and Mia would go on just being friends, and I was just feeling all alone. Even though we'd all be flying out of Thailand together back to Shanghai for one night, even though we'd all be flying out of Shanghai back to California on the same day, the three of them would be on the same flight together, and I would be by myself. When I landed back at LAX, the immigration official waved me to the glass-paned window. He opened up my passport. He looked down, then looked up at me, held my passport near my face. He looked down again, stamp in hand. You've been gone a long time, he said. Yes, I told him, about a year. He looked up. Welcome back. I almost broke down in tears. As I waited for my parents to come pick me up, I called Clint on my cell phone. I needed someone to tell me everything was going to be okay, and he felt like the closest to that connection. But he wasn't there for me anymore. He was now back in his apartment, back with Michelle, the woman he was now dating and I hated everything. Over the next few weeks, I would try to find a new job as I navigated the prerequisites to enter the Susan B. Cravoy Eating Disorder Recovery Program on Olympic Boulevard. They needed me to get a health exam, but I didn't have health insurance since I had just gotten back into the country. You can go to a free clinic, they told me, and gave me a few resources. I called one of the clinics. Why do you need to come in for an exam? The operator asked as I was trying to make the appointment. I, um, have an eating disorder, I said quietly into the phone. You have a what? The man on the other line asked loudly. An eating disorder, I said. Oh, what? He told me. You're too fat? N no, I, I hung up. I looked online and there was another clinic in LA near Melrose. I decided I would simply go there the next day. By now I'd picked up my Jetta from Clint's house. And when I walked into his apartment, I saw how he wanted to keep distance between us. By 6 a.m. the next morning, I was standing in line beside homeless people, people talking to themselves, people who seemed to know each other. One man tried to ask for my number, tried to flirt with me, and I have never been comfortable with any sort of sexual attention, so I didn't really know how to deflect him without losing my place in line. Three hours later, I was finally getting ready to sit down in front of the person doing intake. 
Sorry, he said to me. We maxed out. You're going to have to get here tomorrow, earlier next time. But I'm next in line, I told him. Yeah, people start lining up here at 4 or 5 a.m. You can try again tomorrow. When the man who had been trying to ask for my number saw that I was getting ready to leave, he asked, Hey, can I get a ride? I ducked into the bathroom, then waited a little while, peeked my head out, saw that he was outside, and I ran out a side door. A few days later, I would find myself at a different clinic in Santa Monica. It was calm here. There weren't more than a few people in line. The woman took my temperature, checked my blood pressure. She was nice. I told her what information I needed, and she helped me matter-of-factly. By the end of that week, I decided to close my blog down. I had been sharing so much of my life and felt a lot of support from people who had been watching my journey to get from China to America, but I felt like it was finally time to take space for myself. I was also feeling like I was back in the house that I grew up in, back in the place where I had tried so hard to leave. One of the last quotes I wrote in a post was from Captain Corelli's mandolin, and it was all because I was thinking about Clint and the end of our relationship and just feeling so alone. Love is a temporary madness. It erupts like volcanoes and then subsides. And when it subsides, you have to make a decision. You have to work out whether your roots have so entwined together that it is inconceivable that you should ever part. I cried desperately. I did not know how I was going to make it through this phase of my life. I was about 30 pounds overweight. I was broke. I was living at home. And in a few months, I would get a job working for Herbalife, a leading weight loss MLM company, so that during the day, I would write about people's success stories, making money, finding love, living in the house of their dreams, losing weight. And four nights after work, every week, I would drive around the corner just a few minutes away to talk about how I felt like a failure, how I was binging and purging and couldn't stop, how I was so far from my dreams, how I was totally alone. Finding this therapy program got me to a point of survival. It didn't yet get me to a place of thriving, but being able to talk openly about what I was going through in a group of other people who truly got it did indeed help save my life. That and my car. One weekend, I drove myself to the Malibu cliffs and walked to the edge. I wanted to jump. I sat down, my legs dangling over the side. I didn't know what the point of anything was anymore. How could a Berkeley graduate, how could someone who had been such an overachiever and a perfectionist be here now? But I turned around and looked at my Jetta, parked there as though she were waiting for me, this inanimate object. At the time, my car was the closest thing I could grasp onto to keep me going. Just a car, just a hunk of metal. Clint would go on with his life, and slowly, I would go on with mine. I would realize that healing my temporary madness was a way for me to find my own roots in the ground. I would stay in that eating disorder recovery program where I spent at least 15 to 20 hours a week in group and individual therapy sessions that included art, yoga, nutrition, and processing for a year. And then I would keep on seeing individual therapists for another four or five. My therapists were always white women. I was always the only Asian, if not the only minority in the room, in any therapy room. But I knew from my blog that I wasn't the only one who needed help. Before I closed the blog completely, I wrote that I was now seeking help. And I had so many fellow Asian Americans write comments. I wish I could go to therapy too. You are not alone. If you need help, 
you are not alone. I hope that if you're listening to this, you feel no guilt or shame in hitting hard points of your life and needing to talk things through with someone else. I did it. It got me to the next place, to the next place, to the next place. If you had told me what my life would look like now, when I first started therapy at the age of 26, I would have told you to shut the fuck up and fuck off. There are more resources available to you than you think. You can find the right person to talk to. There are ways to make it work for your budget and your lifestyle. I truly believe that if you are willing to go to therapy, then you are bold and brave and courageous because it takes all of those traits to be willing to look at the hardest things in your life and heal them. I have done this. You can do this too. Fuck saving face. Go get help. For this upcoming week, we will be talking with an Asian American therapist who's written two articles that have gone viral on the Huffington Post about what it's like to be Asian in America today. I hope that you'll get a lot out of her interview because it was an incredible moment to feel so connected to someone who had so many of the shared experiences that I did, even though we've never actually met in person. And then on Friday, we'll do a mindfulness practice to help you be more okay with those parts of yourself that feel very vulnerable, the parts of yourself that you may have been afraid to ask for help about. If you like what you heard today, please feel free to share it with someone in your life. You can support us by going to the fucksavingface.com website, that's FCK, or patreon.com forward slash fuck. Consider making a donation or simply spreading the word so that more and more people out there in the world can know that they are not alone. I look forward to the episodes this week.